Welcome. This is episode four of your MedMal podcast, Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. In this podcast, we look at anonymized true examples of how a behind the scenes, non-testifying nurse consultant was able to quickly locate, isolate, and articulate the core issues in common and not so common medical malpractice scenarios using his or her nursing expertise to save the firm upfront costs, resulting in higher profits and higher compensation to your deserving client. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. You can learn more about how behind-the-scenes legal nurse consulting can improve your firm's win rates and profitability by following us on LinkedIn or visiting our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com. By following our podcast, you can use your commute to sharpen your own standard of care issue spotting and causation narrative skills. Grow your virtual Rolodex of top nurse consultants of all specialties and discover the MedMal plaintiff attorney's secret weapon for slaying the medical corporate giant. It's time to discover the nurse consultant advantage. Let's get started. Today, our guest is Jessica Schaefer. Jessica has a background as a naval flight officer specializing in tactics and strategy as well as counterintelligence, which has all come to serve her in her legal nurse consulting career. She began her medical career as an EMT in 2011 and officially as a registered nurse in 2017 and since then has had a significant amount of emergency room and trauma level two, trauma level three experience, as well as travel nursing, which always brings a ton of knowledge and experience in the emergency room as well. Jessica can be reached at www.taclnc.com. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical background. So when I left the active duty side of the Navy and joined the reserves, my job didn't really translate into anything in the civilian world. I was a volunteer EMT and I loved being on the ambulance. I loved going to scenes and helping patients at the worst possible moment. So when the time came, I decided I was going to become a nurse. I knew I was going to be pre-hospital ER trauma the whole time. And that's what my nursing background is in. And for the last two years, I've been traveling as an ER trauma nurse. How did you fall into legal nurse consulting? I was looking for other options of ways to use my tactical and strategic training and my counterintelligence training and all the intelligence training that I had for the Navy combined with my nursing training. I was on a travel assignment. They had a catastrophic injury that wasn't managed properly. And the doctors and the nurses had all these meetings on how to cover it up and all the things that they had to put in the chart to make sure that none of them got sued. And I'm watching all these hospital administrators standing in this ER telling these doctors what to chart and these nurses what to do. And I'm like, this is wrong. This is horribly wrong. I ended that travel contract very abruptly. I left. I said, I'm not putting my license at risk. And then I started looking into legal nurse consulting and realized that I can make a huge impact to really help attorneys look at these cases from a completely different perspective. Can you give me a concrete example of how you integrate strategy and counterintelligence into your legal nurse consulting? One of the things I look at when I'm analyzing a case is 
not just from the perspective of causation and liability, but how the case is building based on the chronology and the facts and how the other side is going to use that either against the client or to defend against it. So when I'm reading a medical record, I'm looking at it from both a plaintiff side and a defense side. And I take the two and I say, all right, if I'm the defense, these are the strategies I would use to have this information either minimized or thrown out and vice versa. I think that's a critical component of a report on either side, whether it's defense or plaintiff, that you have all of the possibilities of the opposing counsel on your report so that the attorney doesn't find themselves at trial with the proverbial egg on the face for not having prepared properly. And I think that's a faux pas that attorneys get into sometimes directly hiring testifying experts without hiring a behind the scenes consultant, because oftentimes those testifying experts have a tendency to stand behind only those elements of the story that support their narrative, because anything else would appear weak on the stand, which is not a good look for a testifying expert. Absolutely. I've seen it both in case prep as well as trials that I've attended. The issue with having only the expert witnesses look at it, even if an expert witness tells their attorney over the phone, hey, this is going to be a potential problem or a red flag. They can't put it in their report because it's discoverable. Exactly. Everything that we do behind the scenes is attorney work product and it is not discoverable. So behind the scenes, we can elaborate on those red flags and we're not acting as that expert. We're acting as a member of the litigation team. And that is a huge advantage to be in a behind the scenes LNC. For sure. A testifying expert is being paid to support that narrative. I know that's not entirely true and that technically they could tell the attorney, I disagree with your narrative. But then their paycheck stops, right? And so that's one disadvantage. Whereas a behind the scenes consultant, they're being paid to provide their analysis so that it can help the attorney build that original narrative. That's a critical distinction we can call out when there's no merit in a case, which is really important. Absolutely. I have done several cases where they're already in litigation, tens of thousands of dollars have been spent and they're scrambling because all these experts have been lined up by the defense. And now they're trying to figure out how they're going to counter all of these testimonies by all these different experts saying they have no case. I've had one or two lawyers that have brought me in very late in the process. And I've analyzed the case and I've called them and I said, there is no case. And it's crushing. They take these cases on a contingency basis to find out so late in the game that they have no case. Devastating. Not only to the attorney, but to the plaintiff, because they've been strung along this whole time, believing that my attorney wouldn't have taken this case if they didn't think it was a dead ringer. And partway through that attorney is suddenly getting information from their behind the scenes consultant whom they just hired as opposed to hiring early on. And they're feeling not confident going into trial. And that's a difficult moment. It's difficult to back out at that point. And if you start those conversations back up about settling, 
from the plaintiff side, that can come across even more weak. And the defense will say, oh, no, let's do it. Let's bring this. But I've also had it work the other way. I had a case that I call my needle in the haystack case. Shout out to the podcast, Discovering the Needle. That's the whole point. We've got tens of thousands of pages to look through in some of these cases. And it really is finding a needle in a haystack. And with a nurse, you've got this magnet and you can just draw the magnet over that hay and the needle pops up and clips to the magnet because we know what to look for. But if you don't have a magnet, good luck. Most of these MD experts, when they review cases for these law firms, they're only looking at the MD notes. And nine times out of 10, the nursing notes and the nursing assessments get tossed aside. I was observing the trial and they handed the doctor the entire case record. It was a anoxic brain injury with possible stroke. He was the expert witness who claimed he reviewed every page and looked at every note. And the doctor said, all of the progress notes state this, and the imaging states that, and the labs state this. There, you absolutely have no case. This was not a misdiagnosis on this doctor. This doctor did everything they should have done. This hospital system uses an informatics system that auto-populates all of the H and P. And so it's only as good as the previous doctor's notes. And it was a teaching hospital. And all of these residents were just inputting the prior resident's assessment in the prior resident's history. The hospital's informatics system also led to misdiagnosis and mistreatment of this patient because they allowed for that auto copy and paste function. And there were missed diagnosis by one doctor that was copy and pasted by multiple doctors. And because those doctors were being trained to do that and to not rely on their actual medical training, and it became a crutch. And this patient severely declined over three days, ended up having stroke-like symptoms. And it's very well documented in all the nursing assessments and all the nursing notes. And there's documentation of calls to the residents reporting. Right. So it's not as if they weren't aware. They were just on autopilot in the documentation process. If you only read the progress notes, you would believe what it says. Absolutely. And so the lawyer on the plaintiff side handed the physician the full records, which was a two inch binder. And he goes, Tab number 15 is the nursing documentation. Can you please show me in the assessment where the nurses chart that everything is good? And he's like, I've never seen these types of records. I don't know how to read these records. I don't bother with nursing records. And then this is what got me in the middle of trial. He said, nurses can only make recommendations to doctors. Only doctors can actually assess patients. Did you almost stand up and walk out? I almost lost it. And my attorney immediately looked at me who I was sitting in the back gallery and he just got this smile on his face and he's okay. And so then he went down the path that I taught him to go down about the nursing assessment, the five steps of the nursing process, nursing care plans, and 
how much time did you actually spend with this patient on a daily basis? 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. And did your assessment include this and this? No. And just destroyed this expert because he had a nurse on his team, a nurse that knows how to read all the notes. And it wasn't just the nursing notes that called all these doctors out, occupational therapy notes and physical therapy notes, none of which he read. And so then he went back to the initial question. You claim that you evaluated all of these records. Did you actually go through page by page? And the doctor had to admit on the stand that he only read the progress notes from the providers. And then his testimony ended up getting thrown out as an expert because he was considered a biased expert. Providers do physical exams. Nurses do physical assessments. They both definitely have their place. Nurses can identify when the systems are off. There's a disequilibrium in the system. Physicians in their physical exams isolate signs that point to a specific diagnosis. And that nurse can notice some of the most subtle changes in homeostasis that a doctor won't be able to call out. Doctors have to rely on nurses as their eyes, ears, and their hands really in the hospital setting. So it's critical that the person reviewing the record be reviewing everything and they have to be capable of reviewing everything. Nurses frequently look at doctor's documentation frequently. In fact, it is imperative. Physicians, on the other hand, tend to rely heavily on the verbal summary report of nurses rather than the flow sheets, rather than the nursing notes, because that nurse will call the doctor and will give a very succinct report of everything that is relevant to the situation. And the doctors rely on that. So they don't ever really have to know how to read the nursing part of the record, but nurses must read the doctor part. And that is why nurses are much more adept and equipped to provide behind the scenes consultation services, not to mention more affordable, of course. So a couple of years ago, an attorney brought me on to look at a case. The attorney's opinion of the case was that an infection was caused by a long-term care facility. That long-term care facility sent the patient to the ER and the attorney believed that the patient was septic and then passed away while in the hospital. It was a wrongful death case. And the attorney was going after the nursing home for causing the infection. He brought me on to look at the records to work everything up before filing, which is key. Because once I got through all the records, I realized that the infection that this patient had was a chronic, long-term type of infection that they have living in their body all the time. And it's not uncommon with the, the morbidities that this patient had. They had multiple trips to the hospital over years for this indwelling infection. The hospital did everything that they needed to do to treat that infection. Yes, the patient did at some point become septic. But what the attorney didn't know was that the sepsis had resolved. The patient was cleared to go back to the nursing facility, but refused. They didn't like that nursing facility. They wanted to go someplace else. So they were on placement hold 
at the time of their death. And the cause was that they have severe obstructive sleep apnea. They normally require CPAP at night. And the hospital facility never contacted the nursing home or the family to get that client's personal CPAP to the hospital. I can see how this can happen. So a CPAP is a positive airway pressure device that holds the airway open while a patient sleeps. If somebody snores heavily and pauses in their breathing at night, they probably have this very common condition called sleep apnea. And it can reduce oxygenation to the body and the brain, most importantly. And so it's really important that the person wear their CPAP all night, every night. And oftentimes the patients have CPAPs at home. A lot of times, because it's so routine for the patient, this isn't discovered until the patient goes to bed for the first night in the hospital. And as they're getting ready for bed and it's 11 PM and they're ready to tuck themselves in, they say, Oh, I need my CPAP. And the nurse says, there's no order for it. The nurse doesn't really want to call the doctor to get the order for the CPAP because it's 11 PM and no one likes to get an 11 o'clock PM call for something that is quote unquote, not life-threatening. And so I can see how this can happen and probably does happen more than we know. We think we'll just get it in the morning and then the next day happens, the next day happens. And every night it's not remembered because it's not a priority until it's bedtime. And every time it's bedtime, no one wants to call the doctor to ask about a silly CPAP. And I want to hear more about it because this is really fascinating. This is a case where as a nurse, you completely turn the narrative upside down the plaintiff, they're going to come in complaining of damages of some kind. They're going to come in complaining of an alleged cause for their damages. In this case, death, the alleged cause, infection or sepsis. Sometimes what the plaintiff comes in complaining of, when you dig into the records and you have that magnet being that knowledge, you're digging into that haystack with a magnet, with the knowledge that you have as a nurse, you can pick up on the fact that, no, this infection was resolved. That did not cause the damages. What did cause the damages? How did this patient die? And then you can ask yourself if there was a malpractice or negligence involved in that cause. And so this attorney, if they had just listened to the plaintiff, would have had egg all over their face at trial because it would have been proven, no, 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 the sepsis was resolved. And if they didn't have that true narrative of what really happened, in this case, it was a totally wrong defendant. This went on for several days and the patient was in the hospital for well over a week, awaiting discharge disposition. So the doctors were no longer even rounding because it was a social work issue now. Essentially, they were treating the patient as if they were in a nursing home already. Correct. But they were technically in the hospital. The overnight nurse realized that something wasn't right with the patient and did a full neuro assessment and noted several stroke-like symptoms, weakness on the right side, drooping face, hallucinations, slurring speech, classic stroke-like symptoms, immediately called the attending. The attending said, I'll round in the morning came in, rounded the next morning, did their assessment and said that they were suffering from hospital delirium. The following night, the patient got worse. And then the next morning, the patient had died. It was a very clear cut case of 
you know, failure to diagnose, failure to recognize deteriorating conditions, failure to treat a chronic condition, severe chronic obstructive sleep apnea. Severe sleep apnea means that you stop breathing 30 or more times per hour, which means at least every two minutes you stop breathing completely in your sleep once every two minutes. And there are some cases upwards of 120 times an hour in extremely severe cases. And it requires very high amounts of pressure to maintain that airway open to keep oxygenation to the brain. What they thought was going to be a nursing home infection case, which is capped at a very small amount in the state that this occurred at, ended up being a very large medical negligence and wrongful death case against the hospital and the providers that failed to treat this patient appropriately. This speaks so much to how much patients and family members are kept in the dark about what is and isn't happening at the hospital because they can come in with this narrative and say something just feels off. This shouldn't have happened. Mom was fine. What happened? And they have a story in their head about what happened and they'll relay that story to the attorney. They'll tell the attorney the alleged standard of care violation that they feel contributed. And these synopsis stories that we receive as nurses from either the attorney or the paralegal, whoever took the story from the plaintiff, sometimes directly from the plaintiff, the stories that we receive have so many red herrings and you have to be able to see through those and not be fixated on the narrative that was given to you. You completely turn that upside down. Not only did you identify a completely different cause, but you identified the correct defendant and exonerated the incorrect defendant. That is priceless. So that was my needle in the haystack. And it was one nursing assessment that led me down a completely different path. And then I gathered all the documents to prove because one nurse did a full assessment when something wasn't right. And it was one nursing assessment that a testifying expert physician probably would not have even read. It leads you down the rabbit hole, but in this case, a rabbit hole that needed to be followed because that was ultimately what happened. As a nurse, be able to retroactively look at the records and call out an etiology to that cause of death that is incomplete. Contrast to anything that the actual fact witnesses had identified at the time, certainly would not be something that an attorney himself would be so bold as to try to put forward without having that backed up by his consulting expert. Excellent job. I love that in this story, it came completely out of left field for the defense. Absolutely. They were not prepared at all. In fact, the defense tried to get our sleep expert witness thrown out saying this has nothing to do with sleep apnea and they don't want to waste the court's time having a sleep study expert testifying for a sepsis case. That's a crazy story. This is just such an extreme version of what could potentially happen when people step into a case basing their whole case on what the plaintiff said or family said and their allegations of malpractice. Sometimes the plaintiffs or family just have a sixth sense that something was off and this should not have happened, but that's all they have. And in order to justify that feeling, they have to create a narrative. And the narrative is so uninformed that if you, as an attorney, lock yourself down to that narrative, you'll miss something. 
Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I would love to have you come on again. It was an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. This podcast is a production of Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Discovery is the largest unified growing force of specialty nurse practitioners offering consulting services to medical malpractice attorneys who take cases for the plaintiff. Nationwide nurse practitioner consultants to the legal profession or NPCLPs to request a consultation or to be featured as a legal nurse consultant on our podcast, you may reach us on our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com or by calling 208-779-1990. That's 208-779-1990.